So who talks first? You talk first? I talk first. Hello, and welcome to the First Word Podcast from First Showing. My name is Alex, and I'm here with... Mike. And we are friends for a long time, and we're recording the very first episode of this brand new podcast. We know there doesn't really need to be a new podcast, but Mike and I love talking about movies. We do it all day long over text messages, and we finally decided let's turn this into something we can actually record and distribute to all of you guys so that you can hear our hopefully interesting and intelligent but possibly wild and crazy discussions and uh, theorize and discuss the movies we love and everything related to cinema and beyond. Mike, when did I first meet you? Was it Comic-Con, like mm-hmm. eight years ago or something? Yep. I was working for Screen Rant. We were at Comic-Con. I had read your work, but uh, we were at a party. I forget what movie it was at the time, but we both sort of had the same opinion about that movie. And I think ever since then, we've just really uh, connected over Twitter. And then we started uh, texting. So we're kind of taking the next step in our relationship here. <laughs> I haven't been working as a movie journalist since I left Screen Rant years ago and I went to go pursue my own filmmaking career. I've done um, a few documentaries. I've got one that's going to come out in 2018 that I'm really excited to share with everybody. And um, I do most of my work here with a couple of partners in Chicago. Um, and I, I haven't been a writer for First Showing, but I've known you, Alex, for a long time. I think we provide a... Um, a kind of balanced perspective on things. Hopefully we don't always agree because I think it makes for good conversation, good good podcasting. And and one of the things I want to mention is that of course we'll have some guests on in future episodes and we'll sort of get more going and have more discussions. But for now we just wanted to sort of introduce you guys to, to uh, Mike and I and just have a discussion between us. Um, however, we do have a special guest on at the end of this episode as a sort of surprise bonus, the filmmaker Kyle Newman who is the director of Fanboys and uh, a film called Barely Lethal. And uh, he's going to be discussing Star Wars with us at the end of this. So the next thing I want to say is that this first episode, our launch episode, is discussing Star Wars The Last Jedi, the new film that basically everyone is talking about right now. And part of the impetus for launching this particular podcast is that Mike and I have been talking for two years now, ever since the moment we both saw The Force Awakens, that has been such an intense and I would say exciting discussion because, you know, any little theory that pops into our minds we talk about and and we discuss whether it could be real or not. So all of these things have sort of come to a point where now that we've seen it, now we're excited to discuss it, not only discuss this movie, but also where it can go and those kind of things. For all the listeners, this is a spoiler-filled, full-on discussion. We hope by now you've seen the movie, but if not, please go watch it before you listen. Otherwise, you're going to be spoiled about all of the little details because this is what we're going to get into. The, the great thing about The Last Jedi is whether or not you love it or hate it, there's so much to it to talk about. And that's really fascinating. There's not only theories about where it can go, but just the themes in it and, and what happens to the characters and what it means and, and even what it represents for society and, and, and the sci-fi genre and all of these things. To jump right into this, my thoughts on The Last Jedi... Even though I've seen it three times and I like it a little bit more each time, I fully admit that I don't yet love the movie. And I generally expected to love it. And I and here's the thing. I really, really like it. And I want to get to the point that there seems to be this huge debate with people online about if you don't love the movie, you hate it. And that's clearly not the case. There's a very big gray uh, – when I mean black and white, there's the gray middle area where – You know, I can like it a lot, but I don't love it. It's not going to be in my top 10. I fully admit this. But it's a very conflicting feeling because there's so much I love about it. 
and there's details here and there that we can get into that I love about it, but there's also stuff that bothers me. The humor still bothers me a little bit. Pacing still bothers me a little bit. And and my initial reaction when I saw it the first time was like, oh man, I was a little bit let down. There wasn't like a huge lightsaber battle at the end, but we do have a lightsaber battle. So every time I revisit it, I, I appreciate it more and more, but I'm not totally, completely head over heels in love with it. It's not going to be on my top 10 of the year. Um, but I still have so much to talk about. And I, and more importantly, I love the themes and I love the message that the film has. And I love the entertainment value of it. And I, I echo uh, quite a lot of the things that you said. But I, I, for me, it's, it's absolutely just way up there for me this year. I mean, I, I have seen, I keep track of the movies I've seen. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's many people who will listen, um, and yourself included, who have seen more movies than I have this year. Um, I feel like I, I didn't see as many as I'd like. But this was my 53rd and 54th time going to the theater this year. I saw it twice so far. And the reason why it's so high on my list, at least this year, I think about what I want when I go to the movies. I want to be shocked. I want to be, I want to sweat. I want to get so invested in what's happening that the surprises are, are surprising. And those are all feelings that every person experiences on their own when they go to the movies. I get that. What they're looking for is different. But I got all those little things I want in a big movie like this. And on top of that, it's fucking Star Wars, man. <laughs> so, yeah. like, I, I, I think I came in with an unreasonable expectation of what I wanted this movie to be. Yeah, but didn't I, everyone? Isn't that, isn't that the problem? We all came in with this, like, we want everything in this movie. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, big time. I mean, I think, I think that's, the, that's the problem with um, franchising movies like Star Wars. Um, you just start to feel ownership of the movie. But just, you know, to sort of tie down what I felt about The Last Jedi, sure, I had a lot of expectations. I had my theories. I had my predictions. And yet every single time... I thought I was getting close. They would pull the rug out from under me. I've, I've never been in the theater and felt like every character could die at any moment in the movie. And I genuinely was nervous about the outcomes of so many scenes in, in this film. Not just, you know, the bad guys, but Finn. I thought yeah, he was no, going to pull an Armageddon. Sorry, Independence Day. And even when Ray was... Um, knelt down before Kylo Ren, and I, I, I legitimately had a second's pause, thinking, I mean, they can't kill Ray. How that? But, but, but it wasn't so much that; it was the the sensation that I don't know what's going to happen next, and it's so much fun in a big movie because it just doesn't happen very often. Studios don't take risks that much anymore, and risk is a really easy word to throw around. But when I think of risk in a big blockbuster movie like a Star Wars. I look back at the other big blockbusters that come out every year, the Transformers or uh, the Justice Leagues or whatever it is. They don't take risks because they have expectations they feel they have to uphold. And meanwhile, now you have Star Wars, which said, nah, screw it. We've spent seven movies developing really interesting ideas. Let's try something new. That's so exciting that it made me smile at leaving the theaters and then when I went the second time I was able to just focus on the dialogue and focus on the action and be like shit that lightsaber fight was awesome yeah I think that's what helps uh, I think that's the difference the second time watching The Last Jedi is that you've removed all the expectations in your mind you know what it is now and you can appreciate that and like watch it for that 
that's that's the major difference when I when I'm trying to tell people like, oh hey, you didn't like it, go see it again. Not that I think their mind is going to change completely, but maybe they'll warm up to it a little bit more because now they know what they're getting and they're not based around that. Um, and and you know what you said, and and this is something I always wanted to say from the first moment I saw it was that. The, the, the line that was even in the trailers from Luke saying this is not going to go how you think is the fundamental like basis of the movie. It's the whole movie is not going to go how you think. And I, I mean, look, they knew that because they put that in the trailer, <laughs> but they but it's also true and it's accurate. And it, and it represents to me the surprises and, and all these details you said about you don't know what's going to happen. And you, you really the first time around, it's such a jolting experience because I would say for me, there were highs and lows. There were there were high moments where you're like, I don't know what's going to happen. And then what happens is you're like, holy shit, that was amazing. And then there were low moments, I admit, for me, where it was like, I don't know what's going to happen. And then what happens, I'm like, yeah, okay, I got to think about it. Like, in my mind, and this is jumping ahead, but to say it anyway, in my mind, the moment with Ray's parents being revealed, which is a good scene anyway, it kind of like there was so much built into that that it that it like hit me in a wait a minute is this really the reveal and then you had to think about it and then thankfully once you think about it more you you start to understand it more which is i, I want to get into that later about the implications of, of her parents being nobody but that those kind of moments had ups and downs for me throughout and that's kind of what made me feel like i don't love it but i also Again, say that the next time, each more each time I go see it again, I I get into it more. Well, I I, I don't um, I don't think any two people approach a movie the same way. So not to imply that the way you felt was wrong, but it's so different from my experience because I did I had a lot of theories. I mean, I never stopped thinking about this movie um, for two years. I love so many different movies and so many different kinds of movies, but I find Star Wars to be really fun because you can theorize. Um, that's why I used to like Lost, or I used to like uh, or, or Leftovers, or um, I got to name something that's not Damon Lindelof now, but uh, <laughs> or like a, a Chris Nolan movies. Um, hmm. I, I love when movies give you an opportunity to talk about more than just what happens, but what could happen and how it might impact the plot. Um, but but what really really strikes me about this Star Wars movie is that it's inspiring way deeper discussion about themes, and it's just it's very rare for a movie that is going to make two hundred million dollars on its opening weekend to be talking about the themes and the ideas behind that movie, not just talk about how badass that one moment was or how crazy that uh, reveal or that twist was. And we are talking about those things, or the gra- or or the visual effects, or the music, or whatever. Um, there's just a lot to unpack. It's hard for me to even process where to begin. Um, it's yeah. almost frustrating to talk about this movie because it's not so simple. There are a lot. They throw a lot at you, and um, it made me uncomfortable at times. And you know, I certainly would have handled things differently uh, if I were given the opportunity to make this movie. But I wasn't given the opportunity. I'm a viewer. I'm consuming. (laughs) I'm consuming the story that's being told to me. So it's like, do you want to just sit back and enjoy and think about how all these little choices affect one another? Or do you want to just like lean in and tell people how you would have done it better? Um, That just ends up getting into a whole discussion of how should we watch movies and like preaching to people about whether they're right or wrong. 
I just fucking loved the movie, man. I just thought it yeah. was so much fun. I, 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 I gasped, audibly gasped, and I think gra- grabbed my wife's hand and maybe broke some fingers when Haldo went light speed through Snoke's ship. And Dude, but that's my favorite moment. That's like the holy shit moment of the movie. <laughs> and they knew it. And they knew it was the holy yeah. shit moment of the movie. And what's funny is like I'm I'm saying and, and everybody in the theater is saying holy shit because of what happens and the way they cut the audio out, which is it's so funny when you go for the second or third time too. You can know that that moment's coming and you can sort of watch the audience a little bit. And it's just you hear five or six people in the audience just gasp or say, holy shit. <laughs> And then that amazing sound effect, that boom that comes after it yeah. is cool. I... Well, this is actually a perfect moment for me to drop in something that I wanted to mention to you all along, which is the second time I saw it, I noticed something early in the movie that foreshadows this moment where the, the light speed ship breaking happens, which which I put in my review too. It's, it is probably my favorite moment or one of my favorite moments in the movie for all of the reasons you said, like the visual impact of it, that the sound of it, all of these just like, oh my God. And, like, and even the buildup when they're like, the ship's turning around, they're like, what is she doing? And then you're like, holy shit. You know, like even that reveal of it, it still gets me on the third time. But so so in the beginning, um, when when uh, the TIE fighters come and they shoot the frigate and it knocks Leia out of the, the bridge and she's floating, and which is a whole weird thing. I, I'm still not sure what to think about it. Like... They should have killed her or not. I don't know. But but aside from that, we'll get to that later. Um, the the moment she she sort of, uh, quote unquote, wakes up and drifts back into the ship. She drifts back in and she goes through the bridge again. And in the bridge, there's a hologram of the big Snoke ship. And she cuts it. She drifts and cuts the ship exactly where the light speed cut happens. Hmm. It's a beautiful foreshadowing moment of like, that's what's going to happen later in the movie. But you don't know it the first time you see it because you're like, oh, she just drifted through the ship. But like, you, if you watch it again, look for it. You'll be like, oh, my God. And then you, you know what's going to be later. You're like, wow, that's cool. And I, you know, it's those little things that I think get worked in that I liked. No, those, those details are really what's, what's fun about going to a movie more than once. You see a lot of things the first time around. Uh, for example, you know, when they're, when um, Ray is walking behind Luke on Octo and you see that little touch of uh, a, like a sea monster, right? Oh, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. You know, those are little things that, those are just visual effects teams having fun. And they, yeah. they don't matter. They're just fun. You're filling a frame. I'm surprised I didn't notice that because I remember when Jurassic World came out um, and I found it to be such an interesting but sort of non-pivotal moment when, when Bryce Dallas Howard walked through the hologram, was so uninterested in the sort of spectacle of the world that she's building said so much about her character and the same thing can be done with plot points like you just said and then you go down to little details in the film and because these filmmakers are spending two three years making a movie they they see all those things and they assume you're going to watch it a couple times and they put in little touches like showing luke's foot at the end as he's slides his foot and he doesn't make a any sort of mark in the salt and when you watch it the first time, it doesn't even process. It's just, oh, mm-hmm. Luke is getting ready to fight. And then you watch it the second time, and you're like, oh, shit. He's not there. That's why he's not making the salt show up under his foot. Those little mm-hmm. touches are really amazing, really fun, and goes to show you that they didn't just make a movie to make money or to make another movie. They actually found the right guy, and they put in the right thought, 
and that's what's fun. Yeah. And um, before we get into the theories, I, I do want to say for those listening who hate the movie, which there's probably a few of you, I, I, I don't want to say I, I agree with you guys in any way, but I, but I can see – and I'm going to say this with for, for the point of discussions. I see why some people don't like it. Which it is so radical, it doesn't answer these questions, and 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 you know it it throws all these curveballs, and it doesn't deliver. So I can see it, but I still enjoy so much of it, and that's what I want to get across in our discussion today, so that people can understand where we're coming from, and perhaps see it a little bit different from our perspective. And so what this makes me want to discuss, which we were kind of talking about, was the idea. Uh, I want to jump into, if you're fine with this, the the, the discussion of Ray and her parents. Because this is something that I know you and I talked about for two, for two years. And what I, what the interesting thing to me, though, is that it goes back to our, our thread of um, what you're saying of the ownership of the franchise in the movie. Because it makes me think, did did J.J. Abrams set up the question too much? Because, you know, J.J. Abrams is the mystery box guy who's asking the questions, but he doesn't want to answer them. But the, the question of who is Ray's parents becomes such a... Not an overdone major point of uh, the Force Awakens, but it's a key thing. Not in not that the answer means something, but you're just it's just presented in a way throughout, and then that leads us to make it a major point in this movie. But then this movie, The Last Jedi, throws the curveball of that. Oh, it's not a major point, which is an interesting sort of twist on it, and like. It makes me wonder, like, what does J.J. Abrams think? <laughs> like, did, did would would that been the opposite of what he would have done? Um, which I don't think that would be the case, but also then it makes me get to, which is what you're talking about, which is the themes of the movie, which is that I love the reveal that Ray's parents are nobodies because one of the themes, which is step away from and distance itself from the concept that only the Skywalkers and only the Skywalker bloodline can be Jedi or that you have to be a someone to have the force powers. And then it, it, it now sort of opens the door in a very clear way that almost anyone can be a Jedi. Anyone can all of a sudden have Force powers, which is the, the tease at the end of the movie, of course. It, but it makes me then wonder if one of the themes is also the idea that it really is the time to end the Jedi. And it really is the time to say, hey, instead of being stuck to this dogma of what Jedi are and what they should be and how they are... We know what the Force is, which Luke kind of discusses in The Last Jedi, but then now we're clearing the way for almost anything for Jedi. Like instead of instead of almost just black and white, good, bad, light, dark, there's almost like gray zones, which is what Adam uh, – sorry, not Adam Driver, but Kylo Ren and Rey balance throughout the movie. Like you see Rey almost go dark. You see Kylo Ren almost go light. They, they balance that line back and forth so well that that's what makes that – Interesting. So I, I brought up like five. Well, things I, I I don't know if I entirely agree that the film successefully addressed this issue. I think that um, which one? Which well, issue? the general issue of of balancing. Uh, well, two of them: balancing the dark and the light, but also um, the idea that anybody can become a Jedi or anybody can have the, um, the powers. I first of all, I don't think. I don't think the the message was that anybody can have the powers. I'm not so sure if you if if I'm just reinterpreting what you said, but I think the message is that you don't have to come from greatness to be great. Because is that not the same thing? I think though? there's a little <laughs> bit of a difference. That the force is is everywhere. It's around us. It binds us. All that good stuff. But being able to use the force in a way that can 
actually be manifested, that you can see it, I think is not something everyone can possess. Otherwise, they would have shown all three of those kids using the force. I think the idea, yeah, I think the idea is still that the, the it's the few that have this special gift, but that if you if you're out there and you have this special gift, you don't have to be a Skywalker to be at the center of the galactic conflict, which I think is essentially what you're saying. I'm just kind of approaching yeah, it, that approaching it from a different. <laughs> I'm approaching it from a different way. This is maybe what the filmmakers would say, is that the Skywalker saga is something that's tied them down for now seven, eight movies, which is interesting, but it's time to move on, not only for the sake of, you know, the Skywalkers, but also that it opens the door for so much different potential. And in a way that's like saying, this is what I like about it so much, is that it's not that you have to be from the Skywalker, but that you that you can be a nobody and have powers that's the best thing i've ever seen this franchise do is send the message that you can be great without coming from greatness now i don't fully believe to go into a little bit of a speculation side story here i don't entirely believe what kylo ren told her i 100 percent believe that her parents were nobodies i think if jj abrams goes back and changes that it was not it, it, it would be it would be detrimental to raise progression you know who 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 she is and what she represents if you look at the movie there was no time for her to process what he said to her there's no time between when he said your parents were junk traders who sold you for drinking money she's just going right into saving everybody at some point in the next movie she's going to have to deal with the fact that not just her parents were nobody but that they were shitty parents and they didn't even care about her but I do think it's going to be important for Ray to have a catharsis to not feel like her parents were trash because that's then what she'll think she's mm. destined to be. I think she's going to have to realize, mm. or maybe Kylo Ren was just lying to her a little bit. Well, the first two times I saw it, I fully believed that, you know, that was it. And then it was talking with you and some other people online that made me like crack and be like, ah, maybe there's something. Not, I don't believe that it's a lie. Like you said, I'm pretty, it would mess up everything if they, if they changed it to say she's not from nobody. But it makes me wonder, you, you told me something in a text message that I wanted to bring up, which is that you said, remember what happened to the last sort of young kid raised with uh, like a nobody parent in the desert, <laughs> meaning Anakin. And, and you know, Shmi, Shmi Skywalker is a, a much more nicer parent who cares about her child, of course, than, than the people who sold her off on Jakku. But that um, it's a similar situation. And what's interesting is that the comparison to the original, um, not the original, but the prequel trilogy, is that the whole trilogy with Anakin basically deals with his parental relationship as the weakness for him that allows him to become Vader. So it's almost like it, it makes me like want to think about that and like, well, not like who are Ray's parents more, but the, will what you just said about will her confronting that not turn her dark, but but be a, a huge challenge for her to address it. And in this movie, the, the little bit that they do address, which, you know, she's basically crying in the scene and just dealing with it. She doesn't fall to the dark side, even though there's many hints of it throughout which makes me think that at least for now, they're playing Ray as someone who has a strong enough mental capacity to not fall down that path. Well, I think what we're looking at is a, is a very clear play on what we're expecting as an audience and what's actually going to happen. But that's over now. The movie's done. And so it's up to somebody else 
to decide where to go with those those ideas. It, when you look at, at when you look at this movie, it, it really exists in its own story, um, and it doesn't ask J.J. Abrams to do a lot with it in Nine. J.J. is going to have a lot of responsibility. I think there's a lot of complaints out there about the fact that uh, Luke didn't really train Rey, or that Rey didn't Rey didn't spend any real time battling her inner demons. Well, that's the point. The point is that is that it, it's not always a whole movie of, of like a person inter, internal tug of war. Sometimes it, you know, like for Ray, you see the darkness, and you're strong enough to say, "I will not go for that bait." The conversation between Kylo and Ray right before they played tug of war with the lightsaber. What you're seeing is Kylo kills Snoke, but then he goes over to the dead body and he looks at it in a sort of what have I done moment which is now twice <laughs> he's killed somebody in a moment of pure emotion didn't think through his actions and now he looks at the the results and he thinks oh fuck what did I do but similar to Ray in that you're saying she can resist the temptation I, I always and I don't know if they're playing this on purpose or not, but there's always the moments with Kylo after this where he basically like snaps back into to like asshole villain mode. Where like you you know how when Hux comes into the room after it's done and over and Ray is gone, and the first thing he says is, "Ray killed Snoke and got away." It's like he doesn't even he doesn't even hesitate, you know. And then even even when he was talking to Snoke earlier in the scene, he doesn't even hesitate. I mean, he tries to even say he didn't hesitate killing Han. So he's like he. That's what's interesting to me about his character is that he he's he's one of the most fascinating to me that rides that good bad line because you can you can almost it, he doesn't even need to say it. you can see it in his eyes that he's challenging that I, I I still find it to be very shocking that uh, he fired upon Luke ever since he left the temple he wanted to kill Luke Skywalker and now he's gonna let all these big old gorilla machines do it for him like i i was i'm really surprised that he didn't just instantly go down to fight him one-on-one -on -one. i wrote in my review that i think that's his weakness so there's the line about fight to save the people you love don't kill what you hate and kylo's weakness is all he does is kill what he hates and the the, the shot in that scene is so clear where he's his his fist clenches and it, you know, it cuts to the guy sitting at the desk who like turns and looks at him. He's, even the dude who's commanding the ship is like, oh my God, Kylo's going crazy with rage. <laughs> you know, and that, and that, that's the whole scene is he's basically like so angry. He doesn't know how to control it. And he lets that anger out, which is almost like, I, I, and maybe I'm seeing too much here, but it's almost like that's the hint of a possible redemption is when someone is that so lost in their rage and their hate it means that if the right person can pull them out, they can they can get out of it. I don't think that that would be smart. If you look back <laughs> well, at real world, when people have serious anger issues and um, control issues, there's always a victim of that. And what you see too often, and this is there's no way they're not thinking about this in producing more of these movies. The victim constantly tries to justify things by saying if i can only get them to quit drinking or if i can only get them to stop um, getting angry you'll never ever be able to completely erase that part of somebody and i don't think that i think that when he killed han solo 
he had permanently made it a part of his life that he's not going to have any ability to permanently self-control. He, he can't do it. I don't think Snoke being gone is going to give him some sort of enlightened path towards understanding how to control his anger. It's always going to be bubbling at the surface. It's like a Yellowstone National Park of emotions in his brain. And, and, and it's inevitable. At yeah. some point, even if you put a cap on it, it's going to explode again. And that's why I'm so fascinated by where he ends up. I don't think he could possibly survive. Because if he does, there's so many questions about whether he will explode again. If Rey allows him to, to make her believe that he can change, or if she thinks that she's strong enough to change him permanently... I think that would be a fatal mistake. I almost wondered if this was like a plot hole, but I don't think it is. But what's interesting to me is that Rey tries to save Kylo throughout this movie. And yet she's taught in the beginning that from Luke that the Force is all about balance. Life, death, you know, warm, cold, uh, violence, peace, like all of this. And yet what I don't what – I, what I wondered is I'm like if she makes him go light, so to say, if, he, if, he, if she brings him to the good side – She's unbalanced the force, and she's smart enough to know this. <laughs> but it, but it, obviously she's doing it from a purely empathetic, you know, I want to save them angle. But it makes me question that in like, well, if, you know, and we theorized about this before we even saw this movie for years, is, is I, I think I, one of the first things I told you after The Force Awakens when we saw that was like, I want to know where Kylo is going to end up. Is he going to turn good? And because that would be a huge arc for his character. And I don't. I still don't know if he will yeah, or won't. I just don't know what he, what he could sacrifice himself for at this point. It's so. It's this uncharted territory for Star Wars. There's always been a big, a big guy pulling the strings, for our, our tormented bad guy. And there's always been um, uh, somebody guiding our good guy, um, into sort of the promised land of being good. And now it's just our two main characters are at the top, and there's no one above them. And I don't know where you take that. And uh, my gut says that they're going to introduce a new bad guy. But, like, I hope they don't. I really, What I really like about The Last Jedi is that it takes the traditional second movie out of three where you build and add new characters and you really build up to an epic conclusion for the third part. And instead, it just cuts at the knees a lot of really important characters so that our main characters can have a full plate ahead of them. This is essentially why we're getting caught up already in the idea of building up expectations. Because I was just thinking that what I want to say is that I would be let down if the third movie is just Kylo getting worse and Rey getting better and they just fight. Like, that's that's so, like, the typical path that I want to see something happen between them. You know, and I, I maybe it's too crazy to say that I would wish they would switch sides... But it's also like something, something like like that has to happen. Something that we're, as Luke says, this is not going to go the way you think. I want more of that to happen, <laughs> and and I want it to happen in a way where it, it it's interesting what you mentioned in that there is sort of no they might introduce a new villain because they kill off Snoke so quickly and easily in this movie with without much of a like a a, a bat of an eye really <laughs> like it's like boom he's dead you're like whoa okay and then you know you continue on but one thing i want to discuss that we we had talked about a lot is the sort of blowback on some of the other things going on in the movie and i really do want to talk today about dj about benicio del toro's character uh, uh, because i love i, I love <laughs> that character 
and I and you hate that character. <laughs> okay, the first thing is that I think Benicio del Toro was miscast, and I think he's the wrong person for the role. I hate his stutter. It's so it's like. It's like the, the first time you hear it, you're like, oh, okay, I get it. And then every time you hear it, I'm like, oh, this is annoying. And I almost can tell like that he was being directed. He's like, oh, okay, stutter on this word, not this one, you know? And it's like, oh. So I hate that, and I don't like him as being cast in this role. And, and you mentioned something to me, which he just seemed bored in the role, which I can feel like. And then secondly is that he's he's almost – his character has an importance, which I think politically is important, which he's the like middle guy who doesn't take a side and who just profits off of both sides which is an interesting concept. But other than that, it's kind of just this like throwaway character, you know, like he's like, apparently he's not really the real uh, key master, whatever Maz called him. So he's just some other random guy they meet. And, you know, he's kind of so sleazy and skeezy and he does this little thing and then he takes his money and he goes. And it's almost like, what was the point of that? Like, it's just like a weird character in the middle of it that just bothered me the whole time. And no matter what I see it, I'm like, I'm able to now when I watch it, be like, uh, whatever, but it, I still don't like him. So attempt to convert me, Mike. Amazing. Everything you just said was wrong. <laughs> no, uh, I, I, I think that's a fair assessment because it was the um it was probably the one thing they did with this movie where they said yeah um there's going to be some haters on this and but i actually disagree on a, on a few of the things you said one i think benicio had a hell of a good time making this character and i think the stuttering was all him i actually think that he read that character on the page and said i'd really like to give him something unique and added the stutter himself. We'd have to find that out. I don't know if, you know, if you ever interview him, make sure you ask him. But um, I, I, I agree that the stutter was, on two occasions, distracting. Um, <clears throat> the very last stutter he did was not necessary. But I thought it was interesting how they sort of slowly trickled in the stutter. It was not distracting until about the fifth or sixth time and and i agree it's distracting and you never want to be distracted in a movie you never want to notice the strings being pulled his character was important yes but i had to start it was so much fun he played it so well the performance was so engaging and and curious and i want to see more of him you know if he was a major character or it was a movie just about him that star has got to go but I, I mentioned this to you once. I, I was actually the first time through really hoping that the stutter was a trick. I was hoping yeah, that the, the stutter was going to be gone when he turned to the Empire or when he turned to the First Order side and the stutter was just some sort of disarming effect that he was using to not sound so in control of everything. And I, I loved his character so much. The Haitian smelt line. Oh, he's such a jerk. And then he uses the Haitian smelt and he gives it back to her. Oh, what a nice guy. He's a good guy after all. No, but I didn't understand. Yeah, but I, but I didn't understand that. I thought it was like a weird character flaw. I'm like, why the heck is he giving it back? It doesn't go with anything else he's done. This well, whole time. here's what I thought the second time around. Um, I thought, oh, so basically he wanted to. He wanted them to prove to him that they were good for it, and so he asked for the Haitian smelt. The Haitian smelt is a good conductor. He knows that. He knows he's going to have to use it. Blah blah blah. I don't think he necessarily planned to give it back, but I do think that he saw an opportunity to give it back. He didn't really want to take that. It goes along with every other character being a, having duality and not being one note. Every character, except for yeah. 
rose, <laughs> which it sounds like a negative <laughs> thing. But in her case, so far, it's good. I think right now she deserves to be a very like positive beacon in the movie. No, the only the only negative thing I saw about her to, to slightly answer your point was that she she was kind of uh, dicky in the beginning when she was like uh, stunning Finn because he was trying to escape. Like I get her point, but it was like okay, and then but then I love the rest of her. Yeah, so. well, you okay, know, one so. of my friends <laughs> um, brought up a point about their about their romantic uh, thing being unbelievable, and I actually I, I wanted to address it because I really like the fact that. It's not some big epic space romance. I just think it's like she gets to go on this adventure with her sort of hero crush. And then she saves his life because she genuinely wants to experience more with him. She doesn't want to see him die. And that pissed a lot of people off too. And it kind of pissed me off in the moment. I was like, oh shit, that would have been an awesome death. And you would have killed Finn. And that's cool. Like, that's an awesome move to do. To kill Finn? Yeah, I would have been. I would have been all about that. I would have been clapping in the theater if if Finn saved the rebels by flying into that ship. Um, but I'm also super excited about what comes next. I also wondered about the Canto bite. If it was almost like like by the time you get to the point in the movie where the, it, it's it's interesting if you break down the movie in a very simple way. The whole plot is that. This frigate and its group of friends is trying to get to another planet. That's all that happens for two and a half hours. <laughs> and they get chased, and the, the chase takes two hours of time. And the only other excursion is the Canto Bight excursion, aside from Octo and, and Luke. But aside from those – so it, when it got to Canto Bight, one of the first thoughts that came to my mind was like, oh, well, they needed to add another planet to this movie because there wasn't enough going on. So they're like, oh, let's just – get a hint from Maz to go jump to Lightspeed to a completely different planet to get a codebreaker to bring him back to fight. It's it's an interesting sort of like curve in the plot. And it and then and then they built it up with all of everything you're saying, the the political aspects and and the you know, and then it does become important. The writing at least was smart enough to, to work it in, in in an important way. But but it is a side mission in every sense of the word, and you could have just um, developed the plot in a way that allowed them to go straight to the you know, straight to the ship and break the code or something like that. But you know, I think it was clearly important to them to set up the set up the space that that little kid at the very end was going to come from whether that was just because of the themes of the movie or that was because they have bigger ideas in mind for that kid and that's not going to be for everybody but what i love is that kathleen kennedy has already spoken out to say we stand behind this movie and we're super excited about going in new and fresh directions with star wars yeah, and this makes me want to bring up a, a quote that's sort of been going around a little bit um, on, on Twitter is that uh, I'm not sure this is from some book on the movie or some press notes, but it's a quote from a, a, a guy named Neil Scanlon, who's the creature creative supervisor for Star Wars and other sci-fi films. He's a very talented guy who sort of develops creatures and, and works very closely with the, the filmmakers. Uh, and his quote says, we're waving goodbye to the legacy that is the original films and prequels, even to The Force Awakens. Ryan is taking this film to a place that I hope fans adore and is as successful as any other place that we've been. But it's definitely a place that we haven't been before. And that's liberating, isn't it? Because where does Star Wars go from here? What a fantastic way to say goodbye and let's go somewhere else. It was really amazing to do it with him. And he 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 makes such a great refreshing point. Is like, 
I know there's a lot of frustration from fans of this not being what they want, but it's also like I sit here and think there's so much potential and possibility for everything, not only Ray and Kylo, but everything about where it goes and what's next and this and that. And, you know, Ryan's new trilogy, what is that going to be about? You know, um, it's interesting that we do have a Han Solo movie next because it's still the Skywalker saga. But then it's like, well, what are we going to get in episode nine? How much further is JJ going to take it? You know, and I'm curious what... I mean, we're never we're not gonna know the answer to this question until the movie's out, but what JJ's take is on all of this. Is he did he did he see Ryan's movie and think, holy crap, we can go farther? Or did he see Ryan's movie and think, okay, now I know where to take it to conclude this saga? I would take that one step further to be to ask, did he see the movie before he took the job? Or did he take the job <laughs> after he saw the movie? Because uh, if he took the job and watched the movie and was like, What the hell, man? I mean, I, I I handed you six, seven things on a silver platter, and you just smacked the platter out of my hand. I think I found an article recently that J.J. was up for episode nine years ago anyway, so I have a feeling that he's been involved behind the scenes a lot. He's, you know, he's J.J. Abrams. He's a secretive guy. He could, he, you know, he, he may even have read the script at various points and given notes. Like, that, for all we know, that's how deeply involved he could be. Um, and, and, you know, one of the questions this made me remember something to mention is that um, – before the last Jedi came out, like sometime last year in 2016, I think it was there was a there was a quote that came out that said Ryan had asked JJ to change one of the ending pieces in The Force Awakens so that it would work with what he wanted to continue in The Last Jedi. And I'm curious if something similar like that happened with this one. Like if JJ came in and said, "Hey, I have this idea to do, do this. Can you, you know, cut this scene out or do something with this a little bit tiny bit different?" To then allow this. And and it's one of those things we don't know and we will never know until two years from now. But it makes me wonder, like, if, if some of the things you're talking about where you're like, hey, this moment where we don't know what it means and it could mean something, but it's in there for that reason, is something like that, you know? Well, I'm really curious to see where they go. And I, I, I'm excited by the fact that the Solo movie comes out in May, although I'm sure they'll push it to December because that's what they do. You know, I, I know that people are going to start to get overloaded by Star Wars stuff, but that's the point. Uh, no, there are no, there's no breaks. And I, I thought it was really interesting that they kind of forced in those, the dice, which were, you know, it, for people who are really deep into the myth of the, the Star Wars canon stuff will tell you that the dice have always been a part of Han Solo's story. But as an audience member, yeah. it's exciting to know in my mind that they're going to use those dice in Solo. And that when they made and yeah. and that you know just came out today on Twitter, somebody showed the fact that in Rogue One of the things that they listed while they were checking the archives, they saw the hyperspace tracking device as one of those special developments. So like, yeah. in, instead of what I originally thought was going to happen, which is they were going to super duper connect all these movies with very important characters or plot lines. They're just all these little subtle, tiny little universe-building nods, which is actually kind of more mm -hmm. fun. And, you know, we're not done with the Skywalker saga, even if they do, quote-unquote, end it with Episode Nine, because if they do the Obi-Wan movie, they're going to inherently have to touch upon the Skywalker stuff. It's so, cool to have this many questions about where they're going to go instead of just having flat-out theories, which is where we were at this time two years ago. 
And and I and I want to throw this to any of the listeners. If you guys have a really cool theory, you think something interesting might happen or anything, not as simple, but something like, oh hey, I caught this and it might lead to this. Shoot us an email or a tweet or a message and just tell us what you think. I'd be very curious to hear. There's, there are two more things I want to bring up, and one of them is a good discussion topic that we haven't touched upon that I know you want to because we talked about it for years. <laughs> um, but the first the first moment I want to mention, which is one of my favorite moments, and this is just something that I, I've been waiting to mention since I first saw it, was the in the beginning when I already said when Kylo's about to shoot Leia and he doesn't. There's this really beautiful fade between his face and Leia's and then back to his. And it's it's the only time in the movie that happens. And it's so beautiful. Like the eyes are so perfectly aligned and you can tell that they're father, daughter, uh, sorry, mother, son. <laughs> correct. We need to get that correct. Mother, son. <laughs> you, you can tell that. But you can also tell I, what I wrote in my notes is that uh, it's an early moment of his compassion. And it's all in their face. And it's such a beautiful fate. It's a little filmmaking thing that I just loved. Yeah, um, one but, or two frame uh, dissolve. Yeah, yeah. So the other thing that I want to bring up is Snoke. <laughs> and this is the thing I've been teasing you about. About I thought I saw or heard something and I wanted to talk about it. So uh, for listeners, Mike and I have been talking about who the hell Snoke is for two years now. And it's funny because this movie doesn't answer the question at all and then kills him off. <laughs> But there's a moment when he's talking, and it's when he's talking with Kylo, and I think it's when Ray is there, and Ray says something, or maybe Kylo says something about, like, I forget exactly what it was, but Snoke responds by saying, like, ah, you didn't you didn't have faith in my apprentices. And it made me think, okay, apprentices, he has multiple, which would make sense for a uh, Sith Lord or whatever you want to call him. He's not – it's not just Kylo, but it means there's more to him than we know and that we don't get to. And when he says this line, it's the only time in the movie that the music cue is the same cue from – at least I think. Maybe I'm wrong. But it sounds like the same cue from Revenge of the Sith when they're going to the opera. And he's sitting with Palpatine. Anakin's sitting with Palpatine and they're listening to the opera and he's telling them all about the Force. It's the same little opera music cue for for like ten seconds. Here's the here's the deal, okay? <laughs> what? Bring it. The music is John Williams' fan theory articulated. That's what it is. I I, I was actually thinking about that. I was thinking about that. Like he like yeah. I, I honestly don't think I think that all the so far JJ and Ryan and probably even Kathleen Kennedy have actively avoided trying to give Snoke a backstory. Because it's too intimidating and too much of a distraction for what they really want these movies yeah, to be about. Yeah, I agree. And, um, and I think the fact that all anybody has really talked about for the last two years besides Ray's parents has been who is Snoke is proof of that. They put the kibosh on that so fast. It's amazing. And I, I'm convinced, just like John Williams is, that Snoke is Plagueis. Now nobody can tell me that he wasn't, unless in episode 9 we get a little bit extra taste of the backstory. I mean, it wouldn't be that hard. It takes 20 seconds, two sentences, for somebody in context to say where Snoke came from. But I, I kind of hope that they don't do that. They write a nice big novel. They give us the whole backstory in a novel. I mean, why not? <laughs> it, you know, can't hurt. Uh, they do these all the time now. Sure. I, I think people have the right to be upset about the not getting to know who he was not because they deserved it or because there was so much good material there to play with and and an opportunity mm -hmm. to 
build on the prequels or to build on previous content that would make it all rewatchable and change the context without actually changing mm-hmm. plots. And, and, and that's what was exciting about the whole Darth Plagueis theory. But the, 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 what, I, what I really find intriguing about Snoke is that all of his lines are interesting. Basically, every last sentence he says in the movie, you can pick apart. And his death is, is still so shocking to me. You know, like, I, I, I like the way it plays out. Like, with, um, just, you know, he, he says he can read Kylo's mind and he's deceiving him because he's, you know, has two lightsabers he's turning and, you know, that. Like, that's cool. I like that a lot. But I'm still just shocked that it's just like he does it, he kills him, and then it's just over, you know, without without much thinking. And, and I, I still don't – I'm still processing it because I'm still like, well, what the heck does it mean? You know, it's kind of like what we were talking about earlier. Like we've lost the main big bad evil guy now. Well, what does that mean? You know? And, the, and, and also what does it mean because it was so easy for Kylo to kill him, <laughs> which, is, which is interesting because normally it's not. But he did it like in a blink of an well, eye. Well, I think what that does um, is it gives Kylo but it, more but it, uh... – it just it gives him more credibility. Hopefully, I think that's what they hope they wanted out of it. That was one of the, that was part of the shock to me is that when he dies, I actually thought I'm like, oh no, they can't, he can't really be dead. Like he's gonna come back or heal himself or something, right? And then and then like ten minutes later, there's a shot of him like with his tongue just sitting out, like on the, like with his head on the ground. And I'm like I'm like this is the definitive he's dead shot, <laughs> which you cannot argue with. I the only other thing I want to say. To wrap up from my angles, just that I do love Yoda, <laughs> and I'm so glad he was in it, and, and I and I and I love the, the sort of I wrote in my review and I called it epic wisdom that he drops. The line you said about they grow beyond uh, what their master. I, no, I forget the line exactly, but then but then also his line about failure, the most important lesson of all, and and you know Yoda's the one to burn down the the the, the tree or whatever you want to call it, where all the Jedi books are, and. And, you know, he and then even just his little joking line about like, you've always been this way, Luke, you know, like like these little cool moments, like it's a two minute scene. But I, I, I love Yoda so much. And, and like you said, actually, in the beginning is that his appearance is such a, an important part, too. It's not just like a in there for fan service. It's like useful. So I like Yoda. <laughs> and, I, and I haven't. Well, I haven't heard anyone complain about Yoda's inclusion, but I also haven't heard anyone rave about it. And I and I just wanted to drop in that rave and say, you know, I still really love his scenes, and he's he's great. And and you know, this has already been pointed out, but that it they clearly went back to the puppet, which is a much better choice than than doing a CGI character. So I'm very happy about that. Um, I think that was a really smart decision uh, by the by the team to backlight him because then you don't get into all the sort of nitty gritty puppeteering. Um, where it looks kind of cheesy, it, it, you can smoothen it out. It's just I think that just goes to show you things have things have changed and things are looking good um, visually more than they ever have, and it opens up a lot of doors to cool effects and cool design elements. But then they still went with the old puppet. Like I love that. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's so much more we could talk about, but I but I think this would be a good time to jump into the conversation with Kyle. And just sort of expand upon more and get his perspective on things and, and have a chat with him and just hear what he thinks about things and, and some of his theories as well. And, and we've talked about so much. I kind of want to I kind of want to get that secondary perspective. So now we're about to talk to Kyle Newman, director of Fanboys and Barely Lethal. Kyle is a huge Star Wars fan. Uh, a long time ago, he actually took me and a couple of other people from Slash Film and Collider to see Topher Grace's a uh, special 90-minute recut version of the prequel movies. 
And Kyle's the, the one of the, the definitive Star Wars guys, and that's why we wanted to get him on here today is to talk with him about it and just, just, just hear from him. So, Kyle, thank you for coming on today. Thank you, guys. Congrats on the new series. This is exciting. Thanks for having me on the show. Of course. Um, and I guess I just want to jump right into it, but what are your thoughts on The Last Jedi? Is it... Are you happy with it? Did it, did it deliver? It's a tough question. I'm still processing. I think all Star Wars films are meant for multiple viewings. Um, yep. I know every time I see a new Star Wars movie, there's that shock. There's that uh, process I have to go through where it's expectation, um, meeting with reality and the choices that the filmmakers and storytellers chose to take, and then wrapping my head around what those ramifications are uh, for both the trilogy and the greater mythology. So there's a lot of uh, methodology involved in how I analyze these films, and they're not just like knee-jerk reactions. My first reaction, though, was not good. Um, ah, okay. And my second viewing uh, was much more favorable. I really enjoy the film. I, I think there's it takes some bold swings. It has a lot of fun. I was glad they programmed it with both more mythology and spirituality, as well as comedy. Um, although I think there's you know a couple of missteps within there, and some of it's genetic based on what uh, he inherited from JJ. Some of the narrative choices that he was forced to see through, and some I find were just flat out rejections of what uh, JJ was trying to do. So it's a it's a really interesting mixed bag. Um, I look at it as a big rejection of Force Awakens in a lot of ways. Yeah. Uh, you know, the whole journey in The Force Awakens is um, there's this piece left behind by Luke that takes you to his location. And Luke went to go on this spiritual sojourn. And um, then we get to this place and he takes a saber and he just throws it over his shoulder. It felt really comical to me. And I'm still, it still doesn't sit well with me how it was handled. Yeah. Uh, you know, Hux is giving an impassioned. Uh, breakdown of what they're going to do to them, just like you know his big Starkiller base speech, and then in contrast, you have Poe kind of gagging with him, making fun of the the character itself. The idea of resistance is completely dismantled and switched back to rebellion. Kylo Ren's helmet is made fun of, which was so cool in the previous movie, and and Snoke just dismisses it, and then he smashes it. They barely touch on Vader mythology. Snoke being this great mystical character is just kind of tossed aside. I think the shock value surprise of the moment of his death is great. Uh, I think there's a big misstep in there and an opportunity. To, all they need to do is explain one line of dialogue from him. Could have said, you know, I sat here on the sidelines while the Jedi and the Sith played out their game. Um, just showing that he there's something um, more aged and mysterious and... Uh, powerful about him, but they don't get into anything. And yet he's this character who does bring the first order out of nowhere. He does. He is the character that fragments the Skywalker family. He's the one that gets to Ben Skywalker and contaminates him before, you know, um, you know, Luke can properly train him. And this is all coming out. How does he know who Ben Ben Solo is? I mean, he knows he. This precedes the revelation about uh, the Skywalker legacy and Ben even finding out about his own lineage. So how, who is Snoke that he can do this? Who is this powerful force being that he can reach across space and time and have two characters touch each other and interact? Mm. It's almost like a celestial level being like in the Mortis trilogy where they're like a super being. He's tall like them. He seems to have powers beyond what Jedi and Sith can do. Uh, but yet he's unceremoniously 
stumped. And I don't mind the surprise death. That's cool. Uh, it's just there's a they, it. They owed us a little more explanation. And people are like, well, the emperor didn't have an explanation. Well, the emperor, no, we got thrown into this in the middle of a galactic civil war, and we got to see and feel how the characters were affected by the emperor's control for really two films before he came into the picture. But by then, we could feel what the emperor and the empire was about, and we had a, a level of fear built around him. And he didn't go out like a punk. So they're very different. And plus, this exists in the wake of all that. And you have to then say, okay, if you have a character more powerful than the Emperor, more powerful than Yoda, or seemingly so, um, you're going to have to explain that a little bit in the mythology. You know, Return of the Jedi, introducing the Emperor the way it did, gets a pass because it's the first time. It's the mythology is so new. But here is a character that's riffing on that. So it does beg explanation. Um, so I thought there was a lot of things that just took Force Awakens and just threw it up in the air or shredded it and tossed it out, uh, some for good, some for bad. Do you, I, I want to ask from a filmmaker's perspective, do you think it's a good idea the way they're doing it where it's sort of like we make one movie at a time by itself and we don't – Terrible. Cause, Terrible. Cause I, well, There's I also no reason wonder... why. That's like saying I'm going to go to the Olympics, I'm going to wing it. This is the biggest <laughs> scale you can tell storytelling, mythic storytelling. This should stand the test, test of time. These are films that we should be talking about in 40 years like we were talking about in New Hope. Um, I don't know if people are going to be doing that about the, uh, the Force Awakens and the Last Jedi. Yeah, they take some cool swings and introduce some new cool Force powers and mythology, um, but fundamentally, um, it's they're deviating from a classic hero's journey. That's fine. Um, they can go do that, but I do think uh, it would behoove them to sit down and actually plan this stuff in advance. Uh, Rogue One served its purpose. I mean, they said, we're going to make a film that sits right before it. It's going to add another dimension to both the prequels um, and uh, the original trilogy. And it does that. How do you feel like people should approach watching a movie knowing that it's the second of three chapters and that there is still more to come and that trying to decide as a viewer whether or not they've thought something through or whether or not they don't have to have thought it through and they can tell it as they go and look at look at the story along the way in the same way that a TV show might do it because we're not talking about a TV show we're talking about a big space opera trilogy the of most movies. epic modern myth period this is the yeah. myth of the last hundred years um, well you know this movie should work as both the middle chapter and it should work as really like the in the deep in the, in the third act of nine films, or the beginning of the third act of nine films, you know, it's like you're deep in this narrative and it's got to work on multiple levels. And that's, that's the gift and the challenge of this. It's uh, George could make, go, go make three films, pick the point he wanted to start, goes and tells those stories. They were what they were, the prequels. He did something different. And everyone's like, whoa, 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 we want the same. And then here he goes and does something that's pretty similar and everyone believes it's really different. So, um, I don't know. It, it's tricky. And, it, and like I said, it is a challenge. And he beautifully directed the film. I felt like the script needed more work. There's some characters I just don't think add any value. And I, I feel like at times it's without consequence. I would have loved for Rose to deliver her message to Finn after she saves him and die. I feel like then it has value and weight. Right now, I just don't know what they're going to do with her in the next film. I felt like there was an amazing opportunity for Leia to, um, just like Luke sacrifices himself for the Jedi, Leia sacrifices herself for the Rebels. It should have been her instead of Holdo on that ship. Even symbolically, it's already imbued in the, the movie visually. 
when she's uh, flying in space, she flies right through the middle of the hologram of the supremacy. And yeah, I, I mentioned that. that. Yeah. <laughs> I thought there was like a preceding thing, like a good premonition of what was going to come of her taking the the radis and driving it yeah. right through the heart of the supremacy to salvage what's left of her rebellion and her cause. And then you have the two twins come into this world together and the two twins go out together, both sacrificing. I thought that had a beautiful symmetry, but there's some missed opportunities. And and on top of that also, I, I you know, hindsight is such a pain in the ass when we watch movies like this too, because like I, I, I see it and I think, okay, Haldo did that. And now it would have been amazing if the first time we ever got to see Leia using the force, like use the force to push Haldo onto the ship, shut the door and send the the escape ships off and then she goes and does what Haldo ended up doing and sacrificing herself and to think about her using the force in a way to help others I think may have been more powerful than to see her use the force to instinctively rescue herself yeah and she she has used the force throughout we've seen her tap into it at the end of Empire Strikes Back she's tapped into it telepathically in, in Jedi, she senses and feels things. She's doing it all throughout Force Awakens. She's doing it in this film. Um, it's more than intuition. She's connected. So she has these Force powers. I don't know why. And she is the other. So why uh, are we not considering her one of the Jedi? She's obviously powerful enough to Kal-El herself through space. Um, <laughs> I, I, I mean, it's convenient. We're like, well, he's the last Jedi. We're not going to talk about Leia, even though she can do all this powerful stuff. Um, so either you don't have her do that stuff, and then you make Luke the last Jedi, or you do, and now we have to factor in that she's a Force user. You know, it's not like she's turned herself off to it. She's using it when she needs it. She's just not training in it. It does. I mean, she has more training than Ray. She's been around Luke for thirty years. So, um, it's a tricky thing to see her so powerful, but I guess it's in her bloodline. But then again, they don't like bloodlines in this. So. Um, that's the other big thing for me. It's not like Ray is nobody. Yes, she's nobody. And if they're going to stick with that, and I do believe Kylo Ren is, is truthful. I think the Sith never tell lies and the Darksiders and all stars movie always are telling some form of the truth that, uh, is emotionally true. And I think he believes that from what he knows, but she was chosen by the force, whether or not it's her lineage or her bloodline or her family line. This is not like she's a random person like Finn with no ability that says, let us teach you how to tap into the ability and you too, average guy off the street can become a Jedi. No, she was born with it. She's having visions of Octo since she was a girl. She's having visions of the force tree and the books. She, and Luke's like, who are you? So she's been fused and picked well before that. So in a sense, she's still a chosen one. I, I mean, they're getting out of it because they're saying, oh, it's not your birthright, but it's no different than Anakin being a product of the Force. Um, that's all his. That's all that's different about the Skywalker birth, right? Is he's a is a, a virgin birth, a chosen one, a Hercules figure, um, a Jesus. You know, maybe she still is, but she's she's still a chosen one, uh, despite however they want to classify it. Because, like I said, she's not off the street. She's not a pedestrian walking in saying, "Teach me." She's having prophecies, uh, visions fulfilled. And did you sort of leaving leaving the theater the first time, having mixed or if not mostly negative feelings about the film? Wasn't mostly it... negative. Okay. Okay. It, well, was, it was mixed. it was it was thoroughly mixed. Absolutely outstanding sequences. Absolutely mystifying choices like the coup with Holdo and Poe. 
felt a little manipulated. I didn't know what that was. It's like <laughs> if, if she had a plan all along, why did we have to go through 45 minutes of Finn and Rose going to Canto Bite? If all the if all she had to do all along was say, no, our plan is we're gonna cloak out of here and we're gonna go down to this planet in about 20 minutes. Like it was all for naught, and then nothing happens on Canto Bite. So you just it's these sidesteps that uh, were so narratively unnecessary. Um, and characters, uh, the DJ is not a, a memorable character. Rose <laughs> would have been had she passed away and had some sacrifice. Holdo, I thought, was only good at the end because we were we were forced to hate her throughout. When you left the theater, did you did you know people were gonna was just hate um, it? Y- yes, uh, not that they're <laughs> gonna hate it. And look, the things people are upset about, you have to accept that this is the this is what it is. These are the choices they made. And this is the Luke we know. Luke, in my mind, would have never restarted a Jedi Order. Um, I think there's a grave mistake in Force Awakens. It's also poor storytelling to tell these things off screen. It's also um, uh, irreverent in some way to do it in flashbacks, especially flashbacks that keep changing. Um, you know, we interpret a, each one's told a little bit differently, and the characters look a little differently, and something plays out a little differently. And I understand that they're trying to do some Rashomon type thing. It doesn't work, and it feels cheap. And at least in The Force Awakens, it was it was like a, a force back. You know, she touched an object, and it felt like motivated, like a religious experience, like the essence of Anakin, or whoever touched that was carried through into another force user. And I felt like that was Kylo's quest, was to get that saber so he could have an experience like he did with the helmet. Um, I don't think Luke would have ever started a Jedi Order. I think he would have gone more unforgiven in my world he would have said, my father balanced the force. He would have tried to go back for a year and assimilate with the New Republic and realize, I can't train new people. The force has been balanced, the prophecy fulfilled. He would have put down his saber, gone back to being a farmer, probably never told his new wife who he, what he was, had a kid, and then have to be pulled back into this. Then they make this choice where he did train people and he failed. And then I felt like, okay, so he went away to find a deeper truth. That's why he went to this place, which was the birth of all Jedi, the original temple. Even you know, Han Solo says he went to go find the first Jedi temple in scripture. Um, so you think, okay, so maybe he's finding a way to atone or elevate his knowledge since he has no one to teach him. And then we find him in this film, and he's, he's cantankerous, and he says he really came here to die. So it's like, what was the point of the previous film with leaving a clue why did Laura Santeca even have a clue? And if you didn't want to be found or you just were going somewhere to die, why would you go to the most spiritual place in the galaxy? Um, there's a lot of things that just don't add up. And like I said, it's not Ryan Johnson's fault. He inherited some um, strange choices. And I'm not saying I don't like The Force Awakens. I love The Force Awakens. I, every time I watch it, I love it more and more. I love the prequels. People know I'm a big prequel defender. The prequels are not without their problems, and I'll happily talk about those. It doesn't mean I don't love these films, and I don't love the power of these films. But that said, there uh, there's room for improvement, um, and I think there's some serious narrative flaws, and all of this would have been improved had they actually got together and said, let's plot three films. Um, let's let's figure out where this is going to go, At least, at least the guidelines of it. So it doesn't feel like, and both filmmakers have said they kind of do what they wanted to do and let the next person figure it out. I'm amazed that they never did let them, like, I, I'm amazed that Kathleen Kennedy isn't basically like a showrunner for this series in, in, in doing exactly what you're saying, like building a thread out. Well, I think um, to some extent they are, but there's there's an autonomy they're giving to the filmmakers, at least the filmmakers who they like, uh, <laughs> or like what they're doing. Um, yeah. 
And, you know, JJ, I think, had some late game changes on Force Awakens that then had ramifications on Ryan Johnson's, which then delayed Ryan Johnson's film because he had to go rewrite some of it. Uh, that probably had ramifications on Trevorrow's version of the movie. Um, who Ray is, changing mythology, things like that. Um, we know Mark Hamill's been outspoken, and he said he didn't agree with JJ and Ryan about the choices they were making with Luke. And you have the character who's played it and lived Luke saying that he's not totally sitting well with it. Um, so you can understand why people aren't totally... Uh, should you petition it and say, take the film back? This is this is ridiculous. Is it the worst film ever made? No. Is it the best film ever made? No. Um, does it expand the mythology and do cool new stuff? Sure. Is it going to make a ton of money? Yes. Do your kids going to like it? Probably not below the age of nine. No, I don't feel like it's more like... It's not like a kid-friendly film. I feel like it's more for cool cool 30s age people this movie um <laughs> interesting. i don't i don't feel i feel like it's a family star wars you know i feel like ryan johnson gets the spirit of star wars he gets that it's everything star wars is its own genre it's gonna have comedy it's gonna have pathos it's gonna have uh great conflict it's gonna have um death it's gonna have everything you know what i mean it's programmed with all of it it's screwball and at the same time it's you take it deathly serious and it's this really big you know objectively told myth um it borrows and it's an amalgamation of so many different other genres to become its own new thing i think he gets that and there's a lot of that in this film some of it is irreconcilable with other parts though and how extreme they go like luke throwing the saber over his head directly contrasting what we experienced in the previous film and how important it was feels like a slap in the face to people. I can see why fans feel like that. I'm still wrapping my head around the choice to handle it as such. You can have Luke disregard the sword, but to throw it away like it's an MTV Movie Awards joke scene is, is like another thing, you know? And I, and I do put everything up to the litmus test of George Lucas and say, would George have done this? Would George have a character like Hux? I don't know how that character survived two films. There's, I, I still can't wrap my head around a purpose for that character. The actor's People great. love Hux. <laughs> he's great. I feel like he's a Harry Potter type character. I, don't, yeah. I, I just don't get him in... Would you have Ozzel or Piet, like two movies, being this arrogant, snarky... I, people like, well, Snow keeps around for a reason. I don't understand why. It's What is he adding to it? What is the purpose? And if you're not going to have a purpose, then why is he taking up so much screen time? Um, I don't get it. I really don't get the character at all. Like, I, he's my biggest gripe with the two films. <laughs> well, I remember during during the movie, I, I, you know, they had they had at this point they had killed Snoke, which was a shocker. Um, you know, I so it felt like an incomplete storyline for him, and they killed him, and I was going to have to process that, and I have had a chance to. But at the, that point, they almost, I mean, they threatened to kill Ray. We knew she wouldn't die, but it, it felt possible for a split second almost and and then he chokes out snoke and i'm like i mean i'm sorry he chokes out hux and i and i thought shit they're just killing everybody phasma dies uh i mean probably is not dead but you know I, at, at that point in the movie i'm like well, they're just literally killing everybody right now who's going to be left what's going on now they're fighting back to back what's great is the uh, the um the side effect of Snoke being in their heads and messing with them and giving them this ability to connect, he's passed on. And at the end of the film, they still have that ability. You know, yeah, so that's, gonna, that, yeah. that's gonna be a nice wrinkle in it. Um, I think they're, they need a time jump. Uh, one of the things that this these two films, this film suffers from is not taking a time jump. 
uh, the fact that we're meeting, we're having Ray meet Poe at the end of this film, five hours into this narrative, is bordering on criminal. Um, how have you not, like, I, I, I don't understand. I just assumed that they met uh, at the end of the Starkiller base battle back on um, Decar, but uh, I, I, why have the meeting at the end of, unless you're, I mean, they're probably setting up something between them for the next film, but um, they were in each other's presence. It's just, it was just weird to have the meeting five hours into this, this uh, trilogy, um, two of your main three characters. Um, look, things like the porks were fun. Uh, one of the big things for me was John Williams' music, and and I uh, I didn't feel like any new themes popped up for me. It was a nice remix yeah, of some yeah. classics, but I don't. Every Star Wars film has been synonymous with a new theme, um, something that's just dynamic, bombastic, and it, it speaks for the movie, the the essence of the movie, the way this marketing was all read. There's a song that should have been, or a moment, or a new theme, and it nothing's. I've looked, listened to a few times. Nothing's popped as like that's a classic. I mean, for a movie that is is clearly uh, taking new steps in a completely new direction, um, even though it's not all surprising, but you know, a lot of it is completely new for Star Wars. The music felt as derivative as any of the scores had been. Maybe that's because uh, a, a lot of the characters are are require their old themes to be coming back, but. Ray's theme doesn't develop. Kylo's doesn't develop. We we go back to Leia. We go back to Luke and Leia. Luke on Tatooine. All these great pieces of music, but then not necessarily anything new. I mean, Rose is a new character, so she gets something new. But it wasn't obviously anything to write home about as far as the whole like enclave of music in Star Wars goes. But then the one little taste that I thought was so interesting was that 10 seconds at the end of the movie when the music, having listened to the score a few times now, the very beginning of finale, when, we, when we're with that little kid, that is such a beautiful and simplified piece of music that I hadn't heard yet in all of Star Wars. And it gave me such a glimmer of what's to come if they explore this sort of next generation idea. But I, I mean, I agree with you completely. It's really amazing how a movie can be both completely irreverent and have a score that feels completely reminiscent. And I, and you know, some of it, it, I, I wanted it to end in a bold new way. And, um, I wanted something unexpected going into the next film. Like, where's it going to go? Uh, and I think as soon as they have that amazing scene in the throne room, the fight, which by the way, why were the, I was just thought the Praetorian guards were, the Knights of Ren in new armor because each have different weapons. And then it would have really fulfilled that message of kill the past. So Kylo goes and kills his own Knights of Ren while he's ah, taking out Snoke. That's a great idea. <laughs> I mean, how could it not be? You have eight dudes with different armor and different yeah. weapons that look like the Knights of Ren upgraded. Well, didn't they? No one thought of that? Uh, and I just kind of assumed that they were. And I've had this discussion with people uh, in my own circle where it's like, Oh, I just kind of assumed that that's who they were, but they never, I mean, it's again, like a one sentence thing or even three words would have, would have solved that question. Maybe they're saving, maybe they're saving it for the next movie or something. Like maybe it's one of those choices. That's what's weird about it. You're going to do things, keep them in play. You know, you can juggle things. You can keep characters and ideas in play. You can't just like go revisit somebody from a force vision in the first movie 
you know, seven hours later in the narrative. Well, I do have a question. I do have a yeah. question for you guys both. Then I think that applies. You know, there, there's a movie exists in the time frame of the movie, from the opening credit to the end credit. But what we've seen a lot lately is movies, uh, big ones, taking scenes that they cut and releasing them. Uh, you know, when they release the film on home video and then suddenly that becomes part of the canon or part of the discussion where it doesn't actually exist it's not in the movie um you know those meetings never took place because they cut it from the movie but do you feel like they do take do they do they count like if bb8 and bb90 actually had the fight that i was so excited they were going to have and it's on the deleted scenes did they fight there's the deleted scene from revenge of the sith with uh wasn't it shakti um getting killed by Grievous and they put it out. It's been in two different forms, her death, and she's still alive in Clone Wars. So I think the way Lucasfilm treats it is if it's not in the film, then it's not filmically official. We need Pablo to answer this question. <laughs> I don't know. Pablo shies away from canonical questions nowadays. And I think uh, I understand why, because he's bombarded with it. Um, but, you know, they did some stuff in here, which I don't know how it rubs up with some of the new the new novels they put out. Like Bloodline says, uh, you know, Snoke was kind of a thorn in the resistance in the Republic side. He's the reason Leia formed the resistance, because she knew he was going to be a problem. Um, ben finds out after her political rival puts out the information that Leia is a descendant of Vader and that he is the grandson of Vader. Um, but Snoke is already in his head at this point. So um, I don't know if that I don't know if all that stuff still lines up with how they're telling how, what plays out in in eight in terms of Luke's flashback to wanting to murder. It's just I can see why people look at Luke and say, how could the guy who stood on the Death Star and threw his saber down in in, in a message of love? against in the face of the two greatest evils be the same guy hovering over his nephew ready to kill him and i get that he saw the darkness in him and um and it works to tell the story it works because they need it to work and that's why i go with it i'm accepting that's what luke did and i think they worked themselves out of that hole in a nice way and i think luke's sacrifice works really really well it makes total sense he couldn't literally take on the first order himself he says that early on and we know that but he can be the symbol and he is the symbol. The samurai-style um, fight harkens back to some the most classic samurai scenes. Um, and I thought it was really well executed. And the message behind it was was great too. I thought the one of the, the most powerful thing for me leaving the film was Yoda imparting on him this wisdom, saying, "You know, pass on what you have learned. That's what I told you. But you don't just pass on the strength; uh, you pass on the failures too." And that's an important part of being a teacher. And then Luke learns how to be a teacher. And hopefully in the next film, Luke can be a force ghost and be some form of a teacher, even if it's for one scene. But I, I do feel like I would have preferred, and I may be in the, uh, it would have been a more challenging way to do it. This is the more bold way to do it. But that was, it should have been Anakin. Uh, these previous six films were Anakin Skywalker's Rise and Fall. And this would have been the third act of this character's life. He's never a father to Luke. He's never a grandfather to Kylo. As Luke's about to burn down the temple, it would have been more interesting, honestly, and more 
more conflict and more catharsis for this to be Anakin showing up. It's not as cool. It doesn't sell as many Pepsi cans. But um, to get Hayden back, being the grandfather, the father, he never wants to actually speak to Luke about what he's about to do. Like he's about to burn something down and destroy it in rejection, just like he did to the Jedi Temple. And Luke, it would have been this great scene. Instead, it just plays for comedy uh, with Yoda because it's a safe choice. So I don't see... Uh, you know, everyone's like, oh, it's sh everything shocking, everything shocking. I don't see that. I see it ending up pretty safe. After the throne room scene, they fight, and they have this amazing scene. I'm like, where is this going to go? Is she going to go with him? And then is there going to be some schism? You know, and then he has to fill the role of bad guy. He just is like, mm. join me. Together, the two of us can. You're like, wait, already? Ten seconds later, you're back to it. I, it didn't go in the unexpected place for me. It went back yeah. to, all right, now we have bad guy, good guy, and they're going to fight it out next movie, and it's down to the two of you. It didn't go in the in the shocking new way it could have. But, hey, it's still, I don't know where it's going to go, but it, it, I'm not going to be shocked by it. But I think one place where we all definitely agree, too, is the fact that there were ample opportunities, not just served up by J.J., but served up by the previous six films to do something that really made an impact waves throughout the entire saga without having to hold on to the past like this movie does work so hard not to do. Um, I mean, it, by not to get into theories or go too deep into it, but you know, I, I've always been very excited by the prospect of the whole Darth Plagueis idea. I mean, without having to get into it too crazy, they could have really connected these movies in a way that makes them all rewatchable with new context without even without affecting all the work that was already done prior and and expand the the universe without having to even add anything and that's what i think so disappointing about the snoke situation is that maybe that is what they wanted and they just decided it wasn't as important for for runtime certain situation but it would have been worth it an extra two minutes I only needed of the one movie. dialogue. I needed one piece of dialogue from Snoke. That's it. Nothing to demystify him. Nothing to explain anything other than to know that he's been around for a long time and he's been waiting and watching the Jedi and the Sith do their thing. And he's tapped into a new a new prophecy. He sees this unfolding. He's like, I thought it was going to be Luke, but instead it's you. The, the darkness rises and light to meet it. I always foresaw this happening. It was like he just waited until the Jedi and the Sith played out their game. Um, and it's, it's just one line, but it says so much about what, who he was or what his aspirations were. Like, we just didn't even get that. Uh, why, why did he restart the first order in the visage of the empire? Why is he even there? It, it you can't say it's not important. It is important. And it is something that was left out. And I, I want it told in more than a book. And then you have characters like Maz Kanata. I have no idea why she's in this film. Like, how does Poe even know who Maz Kanata is? Like, why is she flying around in a jetpack, like, doing Skype calls with them? I, I don't understand that, at, like, literally at all. Like, it's almost like a slap to even put a character like that, stick it in there. She's so mystical in the previous film. She's, like, talking I, about I how did get the sense that they were trying to connect, that they're going to maybe put her in solo. And that and the dice were, like, the two pieces that are going to connect this movie for audiences. Like I, I would be surprised if she didn't get her day in the sun in in the solo movie. I mean, she's old enough. Yeah, she is. I mean, I just see her as a different character. Like they set her up as a spiritual character. She wasn't tapped into the force, but she was more like a chirrut where she kind of believed in it. 
and and to do to have that mystical type character who at one point I think in the JJ version was tapped into it to, to then have her just this character in a, a jetpack talking I, I it just was a weird use of the character for me and it actually sends the plot in in a not good place um and so I think it's about 35 minutes in where she pops in it's just like to me I was like uh, I don't know about 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 that moment um but like i said uh for the most part it's it's a thoroughly enjoyable film but what's fun about all star wars films is the debate it's going back and forth and saying what could they have done where are they going to go now what is it that's what's great about good storytelling uh and there's a lot of good storytelling in this there's a lot of um unexpected Uh, i do think there is a danger in um subverting expectation for the sake of it um you know we're not expecting empire strikes back to end the way it ended no one going into that film expected it to end as dark as it did um that is a a powerful way of subverting expectation um this i think it does it at dramatic moments to surprise us but i don't know if it's going to be stuff that we're going to talk about in 30 years as amazing storytelling like i am your father um, or Luke getting his ass handed to him on Cloud City, uh, losing all his friends. You know what I mean? I don't, I don't know if there's the repercussions to it. Like he loses his hand. He, f- he finds out the worst possible truth he could ever hear that he is, you know, of the bloodline of evil. Like uh, there's a lot going on, a lot at stake. It's deep. It's psychological. Um, it's primal. Um, and I don't know if this goes there, this film. But I think that's okay. But you know, fairy tales go go deep, 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 deep like that um, into the subconscious. And I don't know if this is going to hit kids on that subconscious fairy tale level. Hmm. Uh, you know, the Grimm's fairy tales have consequence to them. And I think Star Wars had g- great consequence to the story. It's not without loss and hardship. Um, and you know, but I will say this: Ray, uh, Daisy Ridley amazing um in both these films that's the greatest thing jj has given us are these new characters i really love them i love kylo ren adam driver as kylo ren even better his casting was so spot on i mean these are legendary characters for me that are just as cool as the original trilogy characters bb8 is a classic i i love them i think they have room for improvement with finn and his subplot poe really stepped up in this film i felt like he was tagged on, still being alive at the end of Force Awakens. I know it was part of it. He wanted to get this great actor, and so he wrote more for him. Um, and in this, I really felt like he he earned it. He was a fantastic character. Oscar Isaac's great. So he gave us these wonderful new characters, these great heroes to continue the story with. And their performances were, were outstanding. And like I said, this was one of the most beautifully directed Star Wars films on, on, a, on a scenic level. Um, you know, each scene operating it to the to the max extent of how it should. Maybe some issues with macro editing, but I think you know just some missteps and greater narrative choices, um, and uh, many of them inherited by his predecessor being forced to then crawl his way yeah. out of the box he was put in. So I don't fault for that. And look, I'm a, the second time I watched it, I loved it even more. And I know just like Force Awakens, uh, just like every Star Wars film, the more I watch it, the more I love it, the more it deepens my affinity and affection for it, the more it's going to deepen my understanding of 
the choices. And some of them are conscious choices and some of them are probably subconscious choices that Ryan Johnson made in this that we're going to uncover slowly. You're going to, we're going to unearth them as we study the film more and more and more. Um, so is, is it perfect? No. Am I, am I really excited? Am I excited to see it again? Absolutely. Um, but the things that could be better? Yes. Is, you know, it's just, I don't know. Star Wars films almost aren't ever perfect. You know? <laughs> yeah. They're hard. It's it's hard to go make a Star Wars film that has like, you know, like uh, a perfection through every frame. And I don't know why that is, but I think it's because it's balancing so many different things and they are kind of hodgepodge together. It's what they always were. So people are going to love them. Some people are going to hate them and that's fine. I don't think anybody should be browbeating anybody online. If they don't like this film, they don't like the way they handled Luke. Just like, um, you know, if somebody's loving this film, you shouldn't be tearing them apart either. This is your experience. You know, your experience is what you own now with this film. And for me, I know it's one I'm going to need to experience over and over again. Uh, I, I want to, I desire to see it more. My judgment on it is not final, um, but it's definitely improving and, uh, and I like it. So, but it's one of those things where it's not like I just watched Carol and I'm like, okay, I watched Carol. This is, you know, when I watched Darkest Hour, you know, it's, yeah, I could get more out of those movies, but there's a puzzle to Star Wars. There's a prism to it. And every time you look at it one way, you can see it another way. Like, had that been Anakin instead of Yoda, think of how that ties back to the prequels. Think of how that could have tied back to Anakin's own um, journey and sacrifice and his mistake and the power of him talking about failure as opposed to Yoda just saying failure. Um, you forgot to teach failure. Think about him reflecting failure. And what Luke would then have to live with, you know, I, I think there's still room though to do that. And I don't see why Anakin, he should factor into this. I know there's politis and people are afraid of Aiden Christensen, but it needs to be him for one scene. You have to have Anakin Skywalker in the third act of the third trilogy. It's the third act of his life. Get him in there. What are you waiting for? Yeah, I guess... The only other thing I want to ask is, are you are you confident in JJ finishing this up properly? Yes. Okay. Because, yeah. <laughs> Based on what you were just saying, it makes me think JJ's sense of it in terms of the bigger, you know, relation to what's going on is a bit better, especially with what we saw in The Force Awakens. And I'm I'm hopeful. You know, I'm, I, I have no idea what's going to happen or where he's going to pull everything, but I am still excited for it. This was fun to have somebody else come in, take the characters and the situations JJ created, mix them up, um, try new things, uh, leave everything kind of in a state of disarray, and then uh, JJ can come back in and he can work with the people he cast and envisioned and pulled into this universe and wrap it up. I mean, I'm sure there's things he's going to have to do differently than what he intended or planned. Um, but sometimes that's a good thing. You know, filmmakers being put in boxes is a good thing. Um, it's not a bad thing. Some of the worst films in history are the ones where people have no um, restraints. <laughs> they have everything <laughs> they need. Yeah. And you, you you realize that sometimes people need to be challenged and reined and um, questions need to be asked. You know, I, I feel like this movie would have benefited. I know they said they didn't test it at all. They were bragging about, oh, we never tested this movie. No more mm -hmm. than eight people ever saw it. I think they would have discovered some truths about the movie, the comedy and, and pace, um, had they just uh, tested it uh, with some people. Um, and 
uh, yeah, but that said, it's like, I think it's a great chapter. I think it sets up a really exciting uh, episode nine. I think there needs to finally be a time jump um, in these films. I think they're going to have to have Leia pass away in the crawl. And I think that's what her passing is maybe one of the reasons why Kylo feels like it's time to move again um, against the rebellion. Um, but I think he needs time to grow in stature as an antagonist because he's both been bested by Rey physically in The Force Awakens and Luke mentally and spiritually in The Last Jedi. So I don't feel like he's some insurmountable villain the way Vader was or the Emperor to Luke. I feel like if it's just Rey versus him, she's got a good shot. So I, I think something needs to happen off screen or in time that um, emboldens and empowers him to elevate his... Um, his stature as an antagonist because we have seen this hero um, in making and we've seen this villain in the making. And um, I think he's grown in quite cool and dark ways, but I, I don't know if his power level is, it wasn't, it's not at Snoke level and it clearly wasn't at Luke level. So what's going to make him this, um, this true unstoppable monster and the next one. And we don't have Leia to factor into it. She's, I think they're going to have to say, you know, she built the rebellion back up, but she passed away and, and then kind of Kylo kind of begins targeting them again. Yeah. Something, I, I don't know what's going to be, but obviously it's going to happen. They, they're pretty clear. They're not going to do any CGI princess Leia. It doesn't sound like they're going to cast somebody else. So if they do a time jump, you could believe that she died of age, you know, I think you're totally right. I mean, they have to, it, it, it also sets up very nicely, you know, an opening crawl where she's, you know, Leia's gone and the Resistance has a new leader, but the First Order senses weakness and so they attack. And, like, that's your impetus for plot. But then, you know, we do have to figure out what's going to get Kylo Ren to the next level. He's all about killing the past. I don't think he's going to refashion himself a Sith. I mean, he's going to be something new. Um, I don't think he's going to be looking to the past for teachings because he's all about killing the past. I think he's going to just be going deeper and tapping into himself and a raw potential in a selfish new way. And they're going to have to you know, kick this film off with displaying how he's grown in power. I mean, he was a badass when he lands on Jakku in The Force Awakens and he's holding blaster bolts and freezing people and... Um, I want to see more of that from him to put him back to a place of um, power and darkness at the beginning of the next film. Because they've done enough making him vulnerable and human um, over the course of, of uh, this film. Yeah, for sure. Well, um, thank you again for coming on, Kyle. You, you have a podcast of your own, right? Are you guys talking? about this more yeah we have an episode we recorded earlier today it should be out this week it's called the franchise um i'll put out some info on my uh my twitter and instagram it's kyle underscore newman and my facebook fan page will be links to it and i think there's something where it's like a, a first month is even free um for the uh it's with stitcher and howl.fm uh it's fun we have a great panel and we do like one a year where we just go really deep on on Star Wars and the ramification of the new film and the greater mythology. And, um, yeah, it's a lot of fun. I mean, you could talk about this stuff all day. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's what I'm saying. I'm like, I want to keep talking, but, but I love it. I live it, one. breathe yeah. it. It's, it's, uh, <laughs> you know, it's just one of those things where like, you know, it's such a big part of your life that, um, it's exciting when there's a new film and you can then go back and look at all the old films in different ways. 
and you can challenge your perceived notions and throw stuff out the window and and discover something new in a scene you totally thought you had figured out. So I think, um, you know, for that reason, I think Ryan Johnson did a great job with with uh, the movie, and he didn't, you know, play it safe. And you don't want anyone to be playing it safe, and you don't want total fanboy retread. Um, so, yeah, I'm eager to see it again. Thank you again for having us on. Thank you, guys. Good luck with everything. And that was Kyle Newman again talking about Star Wars, and we'll wrap up this episode. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at First Showing, and Mike. And you can uh, follow me at Eisentower30. And we'll be looking forward to the next episode uh, soon. So thanks, guys, and see you later.